From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the ashes and suffering left by Maui's wildfires. Also a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case. Republican presidential candidates make the rounds at the Iowa State Fair. And later, Elaine McMillian Sheldon's new film about coal country as the industry dwindles. When we just look at facts and figures alone, we don't see the full story of coal. But locally, on the ground in the coal fields, the feeling is much more one of identity, belonging, and community. And then a great Scottish poet's memoir of growing up rough and why are British royals so popular in a country that dumped tea in Boston Harbor? First, our newscast at Saturday, August 12, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Rescue teams are working around the clock in Maui searching for survivors as wildfires continue to ravage the island. Officials in Hawaii say at least 80 people have died in the fires and thousands more were forced to evacuate. Ted Lusk, a retired teacher, is with his family at a shelter in Lahaina, one of the hardest hit communities. We're going to sit it out because we don't want to go back through the poly, we call it, the highway, because it's going to be gridlock. We'll just stay here. Oh, sounds okay. Members of the Coast Guard have been helping people trying to escape the flames, which were fueled in part by high winds from passing Hurricane Dora. Captain Aja Kirksey described the rescue efforts to Hawaii News Now. Tuesday evening, the 45-foot response boat medium crew arrived on scene and rescued 17 survivors from the waters in the vicinity of Lahaina Harbor, with all survivors reported to be in stable condition. The wildfires are prompting questions about Hawaii's emergency alert system. Many residents say they didn't receive proper notice both before and after the blazes broke out across the island. When questioned, Governor Josh Green said he's authorized a review of the state's response. A special counsel has been appointed to oversee the investigation into Hunter Biden. NPR's Gary Johnson reports the Justice Department on Friday named Delaware attorney David Weiss to continue his prosecution of the president's son less than a month after attorneys for both sides had struck a plea deal. Prosecutors wrote the judge that both sides are at an impasse. They no longer agree on a plea deal or a diversion deal. That would have wiped out a gun charge uh, against Hunter Biden if he stayed out of trouble for a couple of years. The plea deal, remember, broke down in court after a judge in Delaware started asking questions about whether it would give Hunter Biden some kind of broad immunity from other allegations related to foreign lobbying or his business dealings. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson reporting. A judge in Nebraska has rejected an effort to block a ban on abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy and restrictions on gender-affirming surgery. William Padmore from Nebraska Public Media reports abortion rights advocates had filed a lawsuit seeking to reverse the ban. The lawsuit, brought by the ACLU of Nebraska on behalf of Planned Parenthood, argued the law violated what's known as the state's single-subject rule due to its restrictions on both abortions and gender-affirming care. But the judge rejected that argument. Governor Jim Pillen and Attorney General Mike Hilgers celebrated the ruling. Planned Parenthood is expected to appeal the decision to Nebraska Supreme Court. William Padmore reporting. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts could face a budget deficit after tax revenues last fiscal year fell nearly half a billion dollars short of projections. The Department of Revenue announced yesterday that it collected just over $39 billion in fiscal year 2023. That's nearly $2 billion less than last year's record collection. Officials blamed lower capital gains tax collections. The Framingham Public School System is likely to cut back on bus services because of a bus driver shortage. School officials sent a letter to parents this week saying that they're only expecting 57 drivers this school year, but need 77 buses. Elementary school students living under two miles from their assigned school will be most affected by the shortage. The district is calling transportation companies in the area who may be able to help ahead of the start of the school year. The mayor of Everett has won a major victory in a defamation lawsuit against a local newspaper. A Middlesex Superior Court judge ruled yesterday that Carlo De Maria will likely win a judgment of at least $850,000 against the Everett Herald. The suit accused the Everett Herald, its owner, and its publisher of fabricating corruption charges against De Maria in the lead-up to the 2021 mayoral primary. Swimmers will splash through Pleasure Bay at Castle Island today to raise money for cancer research. The annual Swim Across America fundraiser allows participants to choose to swim distances of a half mile, a mile, or two miles. The head of the organization, Janelle Jorgensen-McArdle, is swimming for her husband who underwent cancer surgery two months ago. We'll be out there just celebrating everyone that is a cancer survivor, um, supporting everyone that is battling cancer, and really just, you know, trying to raise as much money as we can for our hospitals. Money raised from the event will go to cancer researchers at Mass General Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Increasing clouds today in Boston with highs reaching the low 80s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us today. And we begin with a grim marker that speaks to the level of tragedy and loss in Hawaii. Officials in Maui report that the death toll has reached at least 80 people after fast-moving wildfires swept across the island this week. Search and rescue efforts continue. Hundreds of people are unaccounted for, and PR's Jason DeRose is in Maui. Jason, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Uh, such difficult news. Please uh, tell us about the latest developments. Well, Scott, multiple wildfires are continuing to burn around the island, but things are a bit more under control than they were earlier in the week. Residents in affected areas are being allowed back into their neighborhoods if they can show proof that they live there. But sadly, some of them are returning to find only the burnt remains of their homes. There are daily curfews, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in the burn areas. And I should point out that in the western part of the island, there's still no power, no water, and there isn't expected to be for some time. I understand you visited a shelter there in Kahului. Could you tell us about that? 
Well, Scott, this is an impromptu shelter at the Maui High School, started by volunteers from the community and from the school itself. So the gym, like most school gyms, has a shower for folks where they can clean up. There are cots set up for sleeping. They're handing out food, making sure everyone is hydrated. It's been really hot here. Friday was 85 degrees and quite humid. They also have about 300 people staying there. And the Red Cross has started to take over running things. California resident Vesta Sung was vacationing here with her daughter when the fires broke out. She also happens to be a trained Red Cross volunteer. It's easy to have these bottlenecks. And I know for myself, I can feel really fearful because there's no escape. When there's fires in LA County, Orange County, you know, California's big. I don't even want to go to another state to escape, right? But here, I really felt every corner where we had just come from was on fire. Now, Scott, an example of that bottleneck a bad traffic accident yesterday shut down access to the western burn areas for much of Friday afternoon, even for rescue workers. Now, this shelter is in transition as things are becoming a bit more organized. That's creating some frustration for those folks who came earlier in the week just to volunteer to help out when it was a community effort. And, and why frustration, Jason? Well, you know, on Wednesday and Thursday, folks showed up. They brought food, they brought water, doctors came to see if people needed help. But now they have to go through official channels to volunteer. We spoke with one doctor who'd been helping earlier in the week, but by Friday he was being told, no, you have to go register with the Red Cross. And it's not been easy to talk with victims or volunteers. Reporters aren't allowed in the shelter. But we did speak with one evacuee outside who showed us videos on her phone of how quickly the fire escalated in just a matter of minutes. She and her boyfriend got out safely, but their home was completely destroyed. Jason, from from the conversations you have been able to have, um, how do people seem to be holding up? Well, people are tired, they're visibly tired, their voices are tired, volunteers are tired and sad. And you know, this is just beginning since many people at the shelter aren't waiting to go back home because they no longer have homes to go back to. But I wanna tell you about this wonderful moment of lightness Friday afternoon at the shelter. Out in front of the gym there, people have set up this little play area for kids where there are toys and games. And at one point, in the midst of all this tragedy and destruction and death, someone brought a bubble machine. So the whole front of the school gym was covered with these tiny bubbles floating in the air. And you could see the little kids dancing for joy. Oh, what a beautiful moment. Uh, and Pierre's Jason DeRose in Maui, thanks so much. You're welcome, Scott. And uh, we turn now to White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Tam, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. You were in the press corps that accompanied President Biden on a trip through a few western states when these devastating fires broke out in Maui, weren't you? Yeah, he was out west to promote his economic and climate agenda, but also ended up working the phones to Hawaii, declaring a major disaster and surging federal resources to help. And this week, the White House sent up a request to Congress for $12 billion in funding to replenish the FEMA Disaster Relief Fund. These fires come on the heels of record-setting heat in the Southwest and as concerns ramp up about an active Atlantic hurricane season. President Biden sees addressing climate change as a winning issue, as does his White House, and the president is working hard to get credit for all the clean energy incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act that Democrats passed a year ago. 
Attorney General Garland uh, announced yesterday that the U.S. attorney who has investigated criminal allegations against Hunter Biden, the president's son, uh, has now been named a special counsel. There's been a range of reactions. Indeed, President Biden and the White House have studiously avoided commenting on the Hunter Biden situation. And as you say, it did take a major turn yesterday. Just a few weeks ago, it looked like this years-long investigation was ending with a plea agreement with misdemeanor tax charges. At that time, the president said he was proud of his son, who has had some very rough years but has found sobriety. Now, the U.S. attorney on that case, David Weiss, who did start his work as a Trump appointee, has been given more independence, more power to investigate. And that plea agreement has blown up with a very real risk that the president's son could face trial. Republican reaction uh, has not been positive. Uh, They charged that corruption goes all the way up to the president and they object to Weiss being named special counsel. They say it's all part of a cover-up. Though to be clear, they have been making a lot of claims that they haven't been able to back up yet with conclusive evidence. This is a pretty remarkable moment. There are three active special counsel investigations now. There's the Hunter Biden investigation. Folks might not even remember that there's also a a President Biden documents investigation. And then special counsel Jack Smith investigating former President Trump. Also for Trump, he's widely expected to face another indictment, this time from the Fulton County DA in Georgia related to his pressure campaign to change the presidential election outcome there. This is not a normal election cycle. Uh, But there's still a butter cow at the Iowa State Fair. Yes. And uh, Republican candidates are showing up at the fair. Uh, Tell us about those appearances if you can. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely there just for the butter cow. Or maybe it's for the Iowa voters. Seriously, uh, the Republican primary in Iowa is quite possibly more important than ever. Former President Trump is dominating in national polls, and he has a strong grip on the GOP base. But if anyone is going to pierce his inevitability... Iowa would be the place to do it because it goes first. Um, And some typically influential Iowa leaders have either rejected him or distanced themselves. He's been in a bit of a spat with the governor, who's a Republican and quite popular. You know, this is a state where retail politics do still matter. And the Iowa State Fair is a major destination for that sort of campaigning. Former President Trump will be there today. The other candidates who are there begging for relevance are out there earnestly flipping pork chops on the grill and carefully inspecting the butter cow. And just as a reminder, this is all playing out when we're not even two weeks away from the first Republican debate. And the big question there, will Donald Trump show up or won't he? And Paris Tamara Key, thanks so much. You're welcome. The Taliban who shot their way to power in Afghanistan two years ago have thrown women out of their jobs, banished them from sports, and banned girls above the age of 12 from going to school. They've also banned video games, foreign films, and music as idolatrous. And now they have begun to burn musical instruments. A guitar, harmonium, a drum, amps, and speaker were recently set afire in the province of Herat. The BBC quotes an official at the Taliban's Vice and Virtue Ministry as saying music causes moral corruption. There have been other bonfires of musical instruments reported. Music is denounced as unlawful and un-Islamic. Dr. Ahmad Sarmast, director of the Afghan National Institute of Music, told us musicians are treated as criminals. 
Dr. Sarmost emailed us from exile in Portugal. Musical instruments are not human lives, but they are objects that give voice to life. Florence Schwartz, a violinist for the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, told us the burning of musical instruments pierces her personally. It would be like silencing my voice and a part of myself. Yuan Ching Yu, assistant concertmaster at the symphony, said, To destroy an instrument is more than the physical thing. It destroys the possibility, hope, and joy that comes with that instrument. Possibility, hope, and joy might all seem especially vital in Afghanistan right now. Dr. Sarmast reminded us that those instruments were also the way musicians supported themselves and cared for their families. Destroying those instruments also means taking someone's bread away, he pointed out. Our instruments are an extension of our beings, Marin Alsop, chief conductor of the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra, told us. Destroying them is an attempt to destroy their souls. There is another loss. Millions of Afghans may now be forced to live without the comfort, diversion, inspiration, and delight of music. No music to be heard and danced to at weddings. No music to enchant children or console those who suffer loss or may be lonely. No music for those who want to feel something inside them sore. Dr. Ahmad Sarmast also remembers how musicians under the first Taliban regime continued to play music quietly in secret in basements, storerooms, and caves. They will do it again, he predicted. They will not let the music die. And you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR on this Saturday morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 8.18, and coming up in about five minutes, the Teamsters Union reached a tentative deal with UPS, and now rank-and-file union members are voting on whether to approve the contract. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting August Wilson's Fences, starring Ella Joyce, now through August 27th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity, because they believe there's never been a better time for a nice. PlymouthRock.com. It is 71 degrees in Boston, increasing clouds today and highs reaching the low 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. The death toll from catastrophic wildfires in Maui has risen to at least 80. Rescue teams are continuing to search for survivors as emergency crews work to contain the blazes. West African Army leaders are meeting today in Ghana. They're discussing plans for a possible military intervention in Niger two weeks after the military overthrew the country's democratically elected president. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. is warning former President Donald Trump that there are limits about what he can say publicly about the criminal charges against him. Trump is facing four counts for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Candidate for President of Ecuador was assassinated this week. Fernando Villavicencio, a former investigative journalist who campaigned against corruption, was gunned down as he got into a pickup truck after a campaign event just a day after he had told a crowd in Quito, Come, here I am. Let the drug lords come. Let the hitmen come. The time for threats is over. Here I am. Six people have been arrested in connection with the killing so far. Ariana Tanka is the political scientist there in Ecuador and joins us. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm so happy to be here as well. I gather the election will go on as scheduled August 20th, but what does this do to the campaign? Well, the election is still going to happen. There's no change in the date or anything, not even in the debate that's going to happen on Sunday. But as of right now, everybody's kind of feeling very angry, very it's sad. There's this desperation. There's a lot of fear because it feels like our country is in the hands of these drug cartels and mafia, and we do not even know who they are. There's a lot of groups fighting over power, fighting over territory, so it's like an invisible enemy that we do not have either the money, the resources, or the political institutions to fight them. The six men who were arrested, I gather, are from Colombia, and of course, uh, I don't want to prejudge anything, but based on your experience, what, what, what do you see that possibly went on here? So, the spike of violence and drug-related violence in our country definitely had a hike during 2021 and 2022. But we all know that drug-related violence does not appear from one day to another. So as of right now, we are kind of suffering the consequences of past administrations in their foreign policy or, or internal security policies. Sadly, it's not only about politicians and journalists, but they will kill you over a phone. They'll call your store and they will tell you, like, if you do not give me, I don't know, 600 or $6,000, I will kill you. So there's a lot of things going on. And I'm afraid we are looking at the tip of the iceberg and we still have a long way to go. My gosh, that sounds like an impossible place to live at the moment. Yes. It's sad to say that my country is not what it used to be, mm-hmm. and definitely it has changed our lives for our the past two years. For example, in Esmeraldas, which is the most affected uh, province, all these stores, you know, all the economic things going on there, they have to close up at 6 p.m. or 5 p.m., so there's also an economic downturn of all of this. I must say I found it very moving this week to to read accounts of how Fernando Villavicencio would refuse to wear a bulletproof vest and, and would tell a crowd, here I am in my sweaty shirt, damn it, you are my bulletproof vest. Yes, 
that was the kind of guy he was. He didn't fear them. And not only as a politician, because he began, you know, exposing these kind of topics at least 20 years ago. And that's why he decided to run for president as a presidential candidate. But mm -hmm. that was him. He never feared nobody. And he would stood up for everybody looking for justice, looking for peace, looking for the truth. That was him. Yeah. We think of Ecuador, at least until recently, as being a, a common democratic country. What what happened? I mean, there's a lot of, of different gangs that are in our territory. Some of them are branches of cartels from Mexico, cartels from Colombia. Some of them are here. Some of them actually is from Albania. So we have so many gangs fighting over the territory here because Ecuador used to be like a passing country. But now Ecuador is a distribution center. So it makes, makes it more dangerous than it was before. The state has no control over it, and we are left in their hands. We're in the left, our yeah. destiny, our you know, future is in the hands of these people because no one can actually fight them. How do you think Fernando Villavicencio will be seen in Ecuador in the years to come? I think he will be seen as a referent of the fight against corruption, the fight against the mafia at all costs, as somebody who was very brave, brave enough to fight them with his name, with his face. He exposed them with, you know, not only with words, he had documents with him. So I think that's the legacy that he's given us. Ariana Tanka, who is a political scientist in Ecuador, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure talking. UPS workers are voting on one of the biggest labor deals in recent history. Their union negotiated an agreement with the company to secure wage increases and safety protections. As NPR's Danielle Kay reports, some workers don't believe it goes far enough, they're voting no. Luigi Morris steps away from the conveyor belt on a short break from his job at a warehouse in Canarsie, Brooklyn. I'm Luigi. I work as a part-timer in UPS. His shift is three and a half hours. He loads heavy items, bed frames, car tires, air conditioning units, into trucks for delivery across New York City. And it's super hard to do four or five trucks between 800 or over 1,000 packages. Morris makes $16.60 an hour. Under the tentative contract, his pay would be bumped up to 21 an hour, the new minimum wage for part-timers. Morris says this deal has lots of gains for workers, but he was expecting a minimum hourly pay of $25, more hours of guaranteed work for part-timers, and longer breaks. We only have a 10-minute break to go to the restroom, get water, Morris is voting no on the deal, not because it isn't a step forward for workers, but because he thinks the union could use its momentum to fight for more. We have been working in the shadows, kind of being invisible for a long time. And I think this contract campaign allow us to put our voice out. 
340,000 UPS workers are eligible to vote on the contract. It's unclear how many workers will vote against it. In previous contracts, a sizable number have voted no, and there are thousands of workers participating in these conversations. And under new rules, all that's needed is a simple majority to vote it down. But the union is urging workers to approve the deal, saying it's the most lucrative contract in UPS history. Here's Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien at a webinar. We may have made a few compromises, but I tell you straight, we got this deal without a single concession or give back from our members. We left nothing on the field. UPS agreed to put air conditioning in new delivery vehicles, end forced overtime, and get rid of a two-tier pay system for delivery drivers. On a recent company earnings call, UPS CEO Carol Tomei also called the deal a, quote, win-win-win agreement. I'll make that real for you. First, in terms of our people, they will continue to be paid the highest wage and benefits in the industry. They'll have better work-life balance, and the working conditions will also be improved. Christina Pixton, a part-time package handler in Reno, Nevada, is voting yes. She says she's happy with the pay raise, $23.20 an hour, up from 19 I saw enough movement in this contract to get us in a spot where I don't have a reason to vote no. But an employee group called Teamsters Mobilize is running a vote no campaign. Jennifer Hancock is one of their organizers. Hancock was first hired as a part-time package sorter in Richmond, Virginia, more than three decades ago. Back then, she was paid $8 an hour. For a part-timer who is hired now, they would need to be making somewhere in the ballpark of $25 an hour to have the same buying power that I would have had back in 1991. Workers have until August 22nd to vote on the contract. Danielle Kay, NPR News. Been a lot of discouraging news for large media companies running streaming streaming services. Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers Discovery, all struggling to make streaming pay. And a big reason for the strikes that are paralyzing Hollywood? Large streaming platforms have meant changes to the way that writers and actors get paid. And Pierce Tilda Wilson reports that in this unhappy chaos, one small creative company sees opportunity. You may remember College Humor from its viral videos in the 2000s. This is you in college, and these are the six girls you'll date in college. Sam Reich was hired to run the team creating those videos in 2006 when he was just 22. He explains their goal. We had a lot of different departments marching to the tune of a lot of different drummers. So when you say, you know, goal, my initial reaction is old College Humor could have used one. But their content worked. The College Humor YouTube channel reached almost 15 million subscribers. We went viral a bunch. There's a catch, though. It turns out that has limited monetary significance. In the early internet days, Reich says it was all about capturing the biggest audience. If you could get millions of people to look at and share something, the idea was that money would follow. And College Humor knew what it took to get a lot of views. You're thinking about things like lowest common denominator audience. You're thinking about shock value. You're thinking about how to stand out in a sea of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other options. College Humor even had some successful comedy series like Adam Ruins Everything, but they weren't making enough money from online video to justify what they were putting into it. Fast forward to 2018. Reich and the College Humor team switched from trying to be successful on other platforms to creating their own. They called it Dropout as Rice describes the platform in their first promotional video. It's like Netflix, but worse and cheaper. 
For $6 a month, Dropout offers shows like Make Some Noise, Cartoon Hell, and Dungeons and Drag Queens, where drag queens play Dungeons and Dragons. In a landscape of failed streaming startups, there was a lot of skepticism at the beginning. We all thought, well, this feels like a good way to crash and burn. But on the other hand, a fun way to spend some money doing some ambitious things. But five years in, Dropout is still around and growing steadily. Their approach is different from the old college humor. No more reaching for the lowest common denominator. On subscription, it's just an entirely different ballgame where we can focus so much more on creating something that feels special to a small group of people. They're creating game shows like Um Actually, where contestants have to correct slightly incorrect statements about books and movies. Give me a break! God, I was fighting in the war of the Silmarils! Not this off-brand Hydrox Middle-Earth war! Or Game Changer. This is Game Changer, the only game show where the game changes every show. I am your host, Sam Reich. I am joined today by these three lovely contestants now. You all understand how the game works. No. No. Uh-uh. no, that's the point. Glenn Weldon, who hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, says Dropout isn't trying to create shows to please everyone. Its content is niche, and that's okay. He says Game Changer works because of the recurring cast of improv actors. The reason you show up every week is to see them in this kind of unguarded mode, trying to figure things out on the fly. And it's just, it's simple. You are in the room with them, and they're inviting you into their world for just a hang. The same cast members are on most of Dropout shows, which Weldon says adds to the humor. You can just watch it without knowing who the hell anybody is and still enjoy it, but if you know the personas of this stable of actors, you know that it is geared toward exacerbating some personality quirk of one of the contestants in a way that is so funny and so satisfying. Dropout hasn't shared their official subscriber count, but Rice says it's in the mid-hundreds of thousands. He's very aware that this doesn't come close to the hundreds of millions of subscribers that large media companies have, but that's not necessarily a problem. If you look at our size relative to Netflix, it's laughable. But then you look at a behemoth like Netflix and you go, well, even if we carve out the tiniest little sliver of that whale, we can live on the blubber for a long time. It's blubber Rice says Dropout wants to share fairly with the people who make it. Though not required to by unions, he says they're working to become one of the first streamers to pay residuals to their writers, actors, and crew members. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. Yeah, what Brennan. is this show? This, it's very good. It's great. It's, it's, good. Really, it's really good. good. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The pandemic brought a lot of attention to the mental health of young people, but many older people also struggle with loneliness, anxiety, and substance abuse. And many don't get the care they need, as Ashley Milne-Tite reports. There are lots of reasons why older adults have less access to mental health care. 
Regina Kep is a clinical psychologist based in Vermont and the founder of the Center for Mental Health and Aging. One reason is that professionals are undertrained to treat the mental health needs of older adults. Many professionals feel quite incompetent and will say that they just don't treat older adults. Leaving would-be clients scrambling. Then there's cost. Medicare doesn't reimburse all types of mental health provider, such as counsellors, and many providers don't work with insurers. ANCAP says stereotypes about aging can also interfere with care. There's an idea that depression is normal with aging or anxiety is normal with aging, when in fact these conditions are not normal with aging. And can be treated. Kep says older people benefit greatly from therapy. But sometimes you have to be subtle about the approach, because the words mental health still carry plenty of stigma for older generations. New York City has one of the largest and most diverse older adult populations in the country. Lorraine Cortez-Vasquez is commissioner for the New York City Department for the Aging. When you're looking at mental health, you've got to bring all of that perspective into the conversation. Because, you know, there's some cultures that are more risk adverse to mental health services. So she says the city is bringing mental health services to older people, where many of them are, in senior centers. Even if the services aren't always labeled that way. So we are just following up to our Leading with Intention, the gratitude journaling workshop that we did last week. And today we're going to talk about more self-reflection. Social worker Tanzila Yudin is holding the second of two workshops on journaling and gratitude at this senior center in Queens. About a dozen men and women from various ethnic backgrounds are here, from their 60s to their 90s. The Department for the Aging has found workshops like this are a way of getting older people to open up on everything from their physical health to depression to problems with bossy adult children. It's a different generation, different thoughts, different than me. Toward the end of her workshop, this 92-year-old man tells Yudin he'd like to talk about his relationship with his son privately. She agrees and reminds everyone this is an option. You can always come in. We can make an appointment, we'll sit down, we'll be totally private, and we can really connect on what's happening. In the last few years, the Department for the Aging has expanded this model of care to 88 senior centers across New York City. It's free to seniors. But things are different in the private market. Susan Ford lives in San Francisco. She's 76, and most of her income comes from Social Security. I was really in a place of needing something that was very affordable. She's getting a reduced rate working with a therapist in training, a master's degree student at a local university. She says working through the challenges of this phase of her life has been hugely helpful. Ford says every older person deserves the same opportunity. If we don't have care that will help us, society is asking us not to be as alive as we can be. She says human beings never stop growing, whatever their age. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Miltite. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The sales tax-free weekend has arrived in Massachusetts today and tomorrow. You can buy most retail items below $2,500 without paying the sales tax. 
The state has reached a $7 million settlement with former foster children. Their lawsuit alleged that the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families failed to protect them from sexual, physical, and emotional abuse while they lived with an Oxford couple facing criminal charges of abusing foster kids over nearly two decades. The plaintiffs accused DCF of failing to protect them despite repeated allegations against the couple. Next hour, open water swimmers will splash through Pleasure Bay at Castle Island to raise money for cancer research. The annual Swim Across America fundraiser supports cancer researchers at Mass General Hospital and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. At Fenway last night, the Red Sox beat the Tigers 5-2. They meet again this afternoon. It's 71 degrees in Boston, increasing clouds today and highs in the low 80s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with the Beantown Get Down Hip Hop Dance Event, August 19th on City Hall Plaza, boston.gov slash beantowngetdown. As the number of book bans has grown across the country, so has the toll on librarians and school administrators. It's scary. This is the first time I have not felt entirely safe in my job. In fact, many librarians are quitting because of this. I'm Daniel Estrin, the civic price of book bans, on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. From Yarrell and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Elaine McMillian Sheldon's new film defies labels. It's about the reign of King Cole in Appalachia, and she knows the territory. She's a filmmaker with many awards, a Peabody Emmys, an Oscar nomination. She is also from a fourth-generation coal mining family. And her documentary is part poetry, part imagery, history, and storytelling about the hold of coal on people's lives, fortunes, and dreams. Like when a coal miner stands before youngsters in a classroom. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mines. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mines. I loaded 16 ton and number nine coal. I loaded 16 ton and number nine coal. And the straw ball said, well, bless my soul. Elaine McMillian Sheldon joins us now from Knoxville, Tennessee. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Help us understand the hold that coal has on the lives of people you know and grew up with. Well, I think from an outsider's point of view, it's a job, um, and it's a dwindling job. And so when we just look at facts and figures alone, we don't see the full story of coal. But locally on the ground in the coal fields, the feeling is much more one of identity, belonging, and community. And I think we can partially attribute that to the fact that this has been a historically very dangerous job for people, and they've risked a lot to do this job. And There's been a lot of pride wrapped up in this job for 
fueling the Industrial Revolution and much more. And so as years have dwindled in employment, that culture has hung on. Yeah. Quite an anecdote in this film where you remember coming up behind your grandfather once. What happened? Yeah, well, this is true for most of the men in my family who've worked in the coal mines, but you learn not to sneak up behind them. And as a kid, you know, often playing pranks, I snuck up behind my grandpa once and and scared him and saw his face turn white as a ghost. And he asked me not to sneak up on him anymore. And I learned later in life, it's because miners work in these conditions where every single sound, vibration, smell is a marker that their life is on the line. So even their grandchild sneaking up behind them can scare them to death. You've got a high school, it looks like, football game in this film that I'd like to get you to tell us about because I found that to be just a stunning sequence, beginning with the fact that the game is played on a flat field that used to be the side of a mountain, right? Yeah, exactly. So that scene takes place actually on what's called the King Cole Highway, (laughs) and it's in Mingo County, West Virginia. And the Mingo Miners, that's their mascot, they're the miners, on their way out of the locker room, they touch a piece of coal. And that coal itself was mined from the mountain that used to be there that's now flattened. That's where the school was built, and that's where the football field was built. But it was a strip mine uh, through the process of mountaintop removal was made into a highway. And so these miners, Mingo miners, touch this piece of coal on their way out, sort of like a lucky rabbit's foot. And I would say, you know, this film is not your traditional documentary with talking heads. The way we chose to tell this story and finding a new way to tell a new story was inspired by many of these rituals you see on the ground because so many of them feel magical in their own way. I wonder what you say to people who would say, well, you know, this this is an industry that's that's bad for this world at this point. I don't think anyone is in disagreement about whether we need to move on from polluting the world with fossil fuels. I think the question is who's left out of that moving on and how can we gracefully do it so that those who sacrifice the most in what we call progress in this country and in this world to make others' lives more comfortable are not left behind. I think that will only further breed resentment and make people be forced to be stuck into the past. In the film, you note you sometimes felt you were betraying family loyalties if you said anything bad about the coal industry. Yeah, and in the film, I even say that as a kid, I learned to be quiet. I'm still learning. Clearly, I'm, <laughs> I haven't learned. Um, but this film felt like a personal risk to me. It felt like a personal risk to the people that I love. I didn't want to alienate them. But it required me to sort of dig into my own memories and ask hard questions and be more vulnerable. Yet there's no mistaking the affection and admiration that you have for people who have given their lives to coal. Absolutely. I guess I don't know how to be any other way. There's there's no reason to deny the dignity of people who have just been working the job that was available to them. And I don't know a single miner in the region that wouldn't do another job if it didn't pay the same and allowed them to live at home close to family. I think that that's something that's often missing in this conversation is how do we move forward with jobs that pay as well, but also allow people to live in these mountains that they feel so deeply connected to. Is there a feeling of importance of counting for something special in this world that was all tied up in being a coal miner? I think so. I think that it was, you know, not only created in Appalachia, but also we saw 
war propaganda from World War II, comparing miners to soldiers. You know, you, you were not drafted for the war in World War II if you dug coal for the war. That was considered your duty. And so I think there's just been a drastic change of the importance of this job and the pride that comes with that and the, the loss of that. And that hasn't been felt for generations, but the culture of that has been felt. And I also think there's an element of play where you know, politically, we've been told that we're nothing if we lose this king, that if this king is to abandon us, if we don't have this, we have nothing to offer. You know, I even remember a kid when I was making the film, she said, if we didn't have coal, all we'd have would be these mountains. And yeah, people would think we were beautiful, but we wouldn't be important. And I think that that's a really hard thing to overcome. What do you hope happens to this landscape you love and, and the people you love? I grew up in the coal fields wanting to leave and in some ways being embarrassed of my region because that's how I was felt. I was supposed to feel anytime I saw my region depicted on radio or television or in magazines, it was embarrassing. And I never thought I would come back, but here I am and I love this region and I see a future for this region. And I just hope that the people here haven't been beaten down to the point to where I know what it feels like to lose your own agency, to lose your own voice, and feeling like you're told you're nothing, that you have nothing to offer. So this film is really, as much as it can be, full of hope and reminders of resilience. To put coal back in the earth, to not make it our king, and to see the other riches among us, and that includes our human resources as well, the people around us that have lived through this incredible rule and that are going to be the only hope on the other side to get us out of it. Elaine McMillian Sheldon's new film, King Cole, opens in select theaters this month. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. A new Gallup poll came out this week to show what public figures the American public holds in highest esteem. Beyonce and Taylor Swift were not on the survey. They might have run away with the result. Neither was B.J. Lederman, who writes our theme music. President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump tied with favorable ratings of just 41%. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, was admired by 57% of the respondents. Most remarkable might be the showing of the British monarchy. King Charles III had a favorable rating of 46%, higher than any American politician. And at the very top is William Prince of Wales, heir to the British throne. 59% of American respondents view him favorably, far above any American on the list. America had a revolution to break free of the British crown, what in 1776 the Declaration of Independence called its absolute tyranny. Today... It's as if the boast King George III sings to America in the musical Hamilton is on a course to becoming true. You'll be back, soon you'll see. you remember you belong to me. You'll be back, time will tell. you remember that I served you well. Oceans rise, empires fall. Don Patterson is one of the great poets in the world. He's the only poet to twice win the T.S. Eliot Prize and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. 
but he left school at the age of 16 to play guitar. There's scarcely any references to poetry in his childhood memoir of growing up in a working-class housing block in Dundee, Scotland, during the 1970s. There are telling and hilarious recollections, like this about bedwetting. Dad tried to incentivize my continence by putting a star on the door when I had a dry night, with the promise of reward once the door was full. This isn't a great system, but it works much better than battering the child into compliance or humiliating them before their peers. That I could manage myself. I recall sitting outside in the close steps in front of the tenement with the bigger kids who were discussing what guns and outfits they were saving up for. I don't know what possessed me to breezily chip in with, yeah, if I don't wet the bed for another six weeks, I'm getting an action man. But the remark didn't quite win the nods of chin-stroking approval I'd hoped for. Don Patterson's memoir is called Toy Fights, and he joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. That's a pleasure, Scott. Tell us a little about that uh, three-story building where you lived. You're right. There was so much more early death on the street than I took in at the time. Yeah, it was fairly typical. I mean, I think because so much of the housing in Dundee was owned by the council and it was so homogenous, um, you didn't really notice anything, you know, because there were no exceptions to it. But looking back, it was a very poor neighbourhood. But as a consequence of that, and the usual factors like intergenerational trauma and the experience of the men coming back from the war and then the high levels of alcoholism, yeah, it would be true to say that uh, life expectancy wasn't the highest in our street. What drew you as a child in Scotland, after all, to uh, the music of those American outlaws, Willie and Chris Christopherson? It's interesting. I had to think about this. And I suppose it's in a way we saw it as what initially happened in reverse, because, of course, Celtic music itself is a great kind of cultural input mm-hmm. into country music. So it was just that music coming home again. But uh, it was hugely popular in Scotland, so it wasn't unusual to be into it. But my father was a massive enthusiast. He started as a folk musician and then later became a, a country musician. And that was his his, yeah. his love. You uh, You write about a deeply religious period that you went through in your life? Well, yeah, I sort of became a kind of Pentecostal Christian, but and my reasons for doing so were, were kind of complicated. I think I was trying to square the circle of, on the one hand, pleasing my mother, but also kind of trying to be a worry to my parents as part of the kind of adolescent contract. So I found a way of sort of, you know, as I say, squaring the circle by adopting a, a form of Christianity that was so extreme as to be quite a worry to them. So I, I went the full kind of charismatic Christian and, and spoke in tongues and all that stuff. I want to get you to talk about what you, um, well, what you very bluntly describe as, uh, quote, my descent into madness. What happened to deliver you into Ward 89? Uh, yeah, it was a hard thing to unpack because, again, it was a kind of odd convergence of circumstances, but one would have been recovering from that period of religious mania, but it was also drugs. I, I got heavily into, you know, smoking too much dope, and at the time in Scotland, it was getting mixed with you know, other substances. So I had a kind of uh, unfortunate out-of-body experience that was, it was like a week-long panic attack. And after that, I was hospitalized for four months. It was diagnosed sort of uh, afterwards, I discovered, as a, a schizophrenic episode. So that wasn't much fun. Mm. You had, um, I-, I gather, competing visions in your head. I certainly had competing voices. I think the only thing that I took away was that there's 
there's nothing really at the center. You have to kind of create a self or construct an ego or something to hold to. Because for a while, all I had was various voices, none of whom I could identify as me. So the whole process was really sort of um, trying to kind of reconstruct a self just from available materials. So it was fairly horrific to watch it be dismantled in that way and realize that you didn't really have a center anymore. Why is there almost no mention of poetry here in this memoir? I think I rather arbitrarily or maybe sensibly decided a cutoff point would be at the age of 20, but poetry wasn't any part of my life then, so, and it didn't really kick in until I was about 21. There is one little sort of incident that I, that I remembered, though, from when I was about six years old, which was kind of odd if you're a determinist, and my father had found a little book in the uh, in the loft and I'd drawn a picture of Robert Burns as a statue of Robert Burns in the middle of uh, Dundee City Centre. Robert Burns, the great Scottish poet. That's right. But I'd written underneath it, when I grow up, I am going to be a piot uh, and write piotry. And that was, that was the last I'd thought about it for the next 15 years. All right. Just before our interview, the producer of this segment asked you a standard question to get your voice level that he asked, what was your first car? And you said you don't drive. And I said, huzzah, <laughs> because neither do I. Excellent. And you write in this book, as a general rule, poets can't drive and the ones who do drive shouldn't. Yeah, I should qualify that. That's kind of male poets. You know, I know a lot of really great female poets who also drive very well, but there's, there's, there's something about male poets and cars that don't go well together. Um, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure what that is. But I've often kind of suspected that poetry itself is really more of a kind of of a diagnosis than a calling. And I think maybe an aspect of that diagnosis is that you also can't drive. This memoir ends at the age of 20. Does that mean stay tuned? Initially, it meant I didn't know whether I would continue or not, but I appear to have signed the contract and, and be 40,000 words into the next bit. So I guess so, yeah. it's um, So it's a boyhood part two, since men remain children until the age of 40. <laughs> 40? <laughs> 35. I would give you beyond that. But, uh, Don Patterson, his memoir, Toy Fights. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I don't drive, and I'm proud of it. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with adoptaclassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools and local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Saturday continues here on 90.9 WBUR. Join us at City Space later this month for the Mortified podcast featuring true comical stories of adolescence shared by adults 
who lived to tell the tale. That's Friday, August 25th at City Space. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. The death and damage from wildfires in Maui is historic and staggering. Brandy Nalani McDougall is Hawaii's Poet Laureate. There really are no words, you know, for the devastation and the fear and the destruction that's happened. This hour, she shares some of her raw feelings with us. Also, the Attorney General appoints a special counsel in the Hunter Biden case the Women's World Cup semifinals, and a remembrance of Sixto Rodriguez, a great Detroit song artist who spent much of his career unheralded at home but lionized in South Africa. First, our newscast at Saturday, August 12, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Winter Johnston. The death toll in Maui has risen to at least 80. NPR's Jason Rose reports emergency crews are working to contain three separate wildfires that have ravaged the Hawaiian island. Police are restricting access into West Maui, but the highway is open for vehicles leaving Lahaina. The historic town remains barricaded, with authorities warning people to stay out of the area due to toxic airborne particles. They also advise people nearby to wear masks and gloves. The county says as of Friday, more than 1,400 people were at six emergency evacuation shelters on the island. While much of the western part of Maui is without power or water, some cell services is being restored, but authorities are asking people to text rather than talk because of severely limited bandwidth. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel in the criminal probe into Hunter Biden. Garland named Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who's been investigating President Biden's son for years. NPR's Tamara Keith reports the White House isn't responding. Just a few weeks ago, it looked like the years-long investigation into the younger Biden would end with a plea agreement and misdemeanor tax charges. Now there's a real risk that the president's son could face trial. President Biden and White House officials have studiously avoided commenting on it. Republicans, claiming the corruption goes all the way to the president, object to Weiss being named special counsel, saying it's all part of a cover-up. There are now three special counsels actively investigating. There's Jackson. 
Smith, who already has multiple indictments against former President Trump, and another special counsel is looking into President Biden's document handling. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Police in Northern Ireland are concerned about the inadvertent publication of their details in a huge data leak. The BBC Charlotte Gallagher reports hundreds of police officers and civilian staff at the PSNI are raising questions about their safety. Police officers in Northern Ireland have been horrified by the revelation their names were accidentally published online by their own employer. 900 officers and staff have already contacted a threat management group set up this week. A union representing civilian staff believes that number will rise over the coming days. Last night, the Chief Constable Simon Byrne met a group representing Catholic officers. They have been a particular target of dissident Republicans who are even more hostile to them and want to deter other Catholics from joining the PSNI. The BBC Charlotte Gallagher reporting. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The state has reached a settlement with former foster children in their lawsuit alleging that the Massachusetts Department of Children and Families failed to protect them from sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. They lived with an Oxford couple facing criminal charges of abusing foster kids over nearly two decades. The plaintiffs accused DCF of failing to protect them despite repeated allegations against the couple. Attorney Sam Perkins represents the four victims in the $7 million settlement. I think we've succeeded in having a a government and a social service agency recognize that their conduct was so serious that it needed to be acknowledged and uh, a major settlement needed to be paid because of what the foster kids had suffered. A spokesperson for the Department of Children and Families says the agency has updated its policies to better protect foster children and support foster parents. Hundreds of Tufts Medicine employees will be laid off as part of the sale of its laboratory business. State disclosures filed yesterday show that includes 242 employees at Tufts Medical Center, 251 at Lowell General Hospital, and 81 at Melrose Wakefield Hospital. They'll be let go in mid-October. Earlier this month, the hospital announced it would be selling its laboratory business to a North Carolina company. WBUR has reached out to Tufts Medicine for comment. A new state report estimates Massachusetts will need to quickly increase the number of public electric car chargers if the state wants to meet its climate goals. The report by the state's Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Coordinating Council says Massachusetts will need 10,000 of the faster charges and 35,000 public medium-speed chargers. The cost could be nearly $3 billion. At Fenway last night, the Red Sox beat the Tigers 5-2. to two. They play again this afternoon. It is 71 degrees in Boston, getting cloudier today with highs in the low 80s, a chance of some showers and thunderstorms tonight, a low around 70. Partly sunny tomorrow, a chance of showers and thunderstorms Sunday with highs in the low 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. 
The Justice Department has appointed a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden, President Biden's son. Attorney General Garland made the announcement yesterday. Today's announcement affords the prosecutors, agents, and analysts working on this matter the ability to proceed with their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. This news comes as a plea deal between prosecutors and Hunter Biden appears to have fizzled out. NPR's Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson has been following the story and joins us. Carrie, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to be here, Scott. Please tell us about David Weiss, this person uh, who's now the special counsel. Well, he's a holdover U.S. attorney from Delaware, initially appointed by former President Donald Trump. And he's the same guy who's been investigating Hunter Biden since 2019. The difference now is that a special counsel, he will write a report explaining his decisions about charging people or declining to charge people. And he's going to operate outside of day-to-day supervision from the Justice Department leaders. But they can override his decisions if they think they're inappropriate. The trick there is that Congress would learn about any of those overrides eventually. And Carrie, if, if he was already on the job in this investigation, why the need to become a special counsel? That's not entirely clear. The Justice Department doesn't tell us who they're investigating or for what. But the appointment paperwork references an investigation of Hunter Biden, among others. And Attorney General Merrick Garland told us Weiss had reached a stage in the investigation where becoming a special counsel was necessary. Carrie, what happened to the Hunter Biden plea deal? It looked to be in place and then something changed. Yeah, things went wrong. Last month, a federal judge in Delaware questioned the terms of the deal, specifically whether it conveyed a kind of broad immunity to Hunter Biden over his business dealings and foreign lobbying. So prosecutors said no, and lawyers for Hunter Biden said yes, there was no meeting of the minds. Yesterday, prosecutors said they remained at an impasse. They said there's no plea deal. So this agreement for Hunter Biden to plead guilty to two tax charges and enter a diversion program for a gun charge now seems to be dead. Right now, unless something big happens, it seems this case could be headed for trial. And of course, President Biden is running for re-election at the, at the same time. How, how was the White House responding to the news of a special counsel? The White House is declining comment. Hunter Biden's lawyer says nothing has changed in their view now that there's a special counsel. He says they expect a, quote, fair resolution, not infected by politics. And former President Trump uh, got got in line, too. He accused the Justice Department yesterday without any evidence of protecting Joe and Hunter Biden, even though the Justice Department is now investigating them both. Republicans in Congress have been demanding that prosecutors take action against Hunter Biden. Now they say the special counsel move is designed to stonewall their investigations. But for what it's worth, special counsels do regularly testify before Congress, but only after their work is done. And President Trump had another day in court yesterday. Carrie, tell us about that, please. Busy day. This is the case against Trump for trying to overturn the 2020 election that culminated in the Capitol riot. Judge Tanya Chutkin imposed a protective order to limit how much Trump can talk about sensitive documents he'll get in the course of the case. She's worried about him potentially intimidating witnesses and polluting the jury pool here in D.C. The judge says Donald Trump does have First Amendment rights, but he's subject to restrictions like any other criminal defendant. And she warned everyone to be careful 
people in their public statements before trial, a message to the defense that making inflammatory remarks could actually lead to having a trial in D.C. sooner rather than later to minimize prejudicial statements of the potential jurors might hear. NPR Justice Correspondent, Kerry Johnson, thanks so much. My pleasure. The wildfires that have raged across Maui over the past few days are tragic, historic, and devastating. At least 80 people have died so far. Thousands more are burned out of their homes. Whole communities now are reduced to rubble and ash. This week will be a dark period in Hawaii's history. Brandy Nalani McDougall is Hawaii's Poet Laureate, and she joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Mahalo for having me. How are you? I understand your family had to evacuate. Yes, the police came at 4 a.m. on Tuesday morning, and they needed to evacuate. They live in our family home in Kula on Maui. So they were able to find other family to stay with further up in Kula, away from the fires, thankfully. But even as I say that, it also hurts because I know so many other people on Maui aren't sure of their family or have family that they've lost. I'm just wondering, with your poetic powers of observation, what are some of the thoughts that run through your mind as you as you see the fires sweeping over Maui and, and people fleeing and so many losing their lives, their homes, their place in this world? As a poet, I'm really at a loss. But I love Maui. Maui is, has always been my home. I've always felt really connected to Kula in particular. So it also just pains me to see that Aina, that land, being ravaged in such a horrific way. I wonder if you recall any of your own lines from anything you've written that bear on this. For now, I really wanted to share a part of a poem that uh, is really a love song for water on the island and how it's created, if that's okay. Please. Um, high in the mountains in the pico of each of these islands where earth sieves the sky in the kuahibi, the kuamauna, the kualono, the kuahea, the valkele, the valakua, the valmani, where the air is a thick howl and the gods are seeds of cold cloud mist billowing between short bent trees. Descending to the Vauiva, the Vaulipo, the Vaulahele, the Vaulaau, where Ohia, Koa, Kukui, and Ali'i, where Mamane, Lawai, Wiliwili, and Ohelo, where Alahe'e, Ulei, Kawila, and Maile, where the Uhi Uhi, Kokio, Aea, and Halapepe arouse fat clouds with sweetened wafts, where the fog lingers and drips and birds slurp their song feeding the understory. That's beautiful. If this vision in what I wrote was allowed to happen, where water was allowed to flow, where it was allowed to be created and continued to feed and nurture everyone it should, this wouldn't have happened. So much about Hawaiian land protection and water protection is about restoration of Aina, restoration of the land. And that includes 
water restoration, letting water remember where it should go, letting water flow where it needs to go, because it was already a system that protected us as well. And a lot of Hawaiian land and water protection has been a fight for so many generations now. We have to go to the courts. We have to put our bodies on the line to protect everything. And we're seeing the devastating consequences of that lack of protection. Part of that tension over the years has been created by the fact that you you just had a lot of people who wanted to come there. A lot of people who uh, sensed opportunity, a lot of people who thought they wanted to be in paradise for a week or for the rest of their lives. Yeah. I can see that. I can see, you know, there, there's so much beauty here. And um, I can see how anyone would want to be here and, and would fall in love with it. But I think there's a way to be here responsibly. And the typical sort of tourist experience, unfortunately, is not always responsible in the way that it should be to the environment or to the people who live here. What do you hope for in the future? And by that, I mean the next few weeks and months and then years. I hope that, you know, all of our communities can come together. Here in Hawaii, we still have a lot of really close-knit communities. We still have a lot of folks who want to take care of each other. Some of the stories coming out of Lahaina I've heard are about people, you know, risking their own lives to try to help others. And that has been really beautiful to see. And I think we're going to need to all come together to do that, to help people heal and to help Aina heal. You're the Poet Laureate of the State of Hawaii. Do you feel you have to write about this somehow? It still feels very traumatic for me, I think, to write about it at least now. I might need some time to, to process it, but it certainly is something really important. I would encourage anyone who feels moved to, to write about it as well. I think this is a story that affects so many of us. This is a real, or should be a real wake-up moment for all of us. And writing poetry, letters, even Facebook posts or social media posts are all a part of processing that and of having really important conversations. Brandy Nellany McDougall, Poet Laureate of the State of Hawaii. Thank you so much and um, best to you and your family and, and friends on Maui and everywhere. Thank you. Mahalo. Mahalo, Nguyen. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about five minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, you'll hear about the D.C. Public Library's third annual Dinosaur Roaring Contest. And you'll get some fun facts, such as the detail that dinosaurs did not roar. It's 73 degrees in Boston at 918. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Geo Swaby, Fresh Up. A millennial artist from the Bahamas explores love and personal style through her expressive textile portraits. Join their opening celebration today. Learn more at PEM.org. And Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. Search and rescue operations continue across Maui. Officials in Hawaii say at least 80 people have died after a series of wildfires broke out earlier this week. A state of emergency remains in effect for the entire island. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel in the case against Hunter Biden. Garland has named David Weiss, the U.S. attorney in Delaware, who's been looking into the president's son's financial dealings for years. Authorities rescued dozens of migrants from a sailboat off the southern coast of Greece on Friday. Coast Guard officials say the evacuation followed a large search and rescue operation. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Taiwan's vice president stops in New York today on his way to Paraguay. He hopes to be Taiwan's next president, and what should be a low-key stopover is not because of China. China's already announced military drills in waters near Taiwan to signal displeasure. Here's NPR's Emily Fang. Lai Qingde, or William Lai, as he goes by in English, is doing what almost all Taiwanese presidential hopefuls do ahead of an election, making a stop in the U.S. It's almost a rite of passage in a way. This is Win T. Sung, a professor of political science at Australia National University. So that's how Taiwan's presidential candidates go about proving their foreign policy credentials. They are proving that they are respected by the world's superpower. They can work with these people. They are respected by these people. An important quality for Taiwanese voters, given that the U.S. is Taiwan's most important defense partner and a key trading partner as well. But China wants the world to treat Taiwan as its province, not as a full-blown country. And official Taiwanese trips abroad like this one anger Beijing. Wen Tisung says this one in particular, with Taiwan's January election so close. So it's really when Lai Qingde is not only vice president, but also the front runner in Taiwan's upcoming 2024 presidential race, that those two things together really make Beijing uneasy about it. The cost of a misstep on this trip is high. 
So Taiwan is handling Lai's travel carefully. Diplomats say he's not making any public appearances while in the U.S., preferring instead to privately meet with American officials. And U.S. officials pointedly referred to Lai's trip as a transit, meaning a stop for logistical rather than political purposes. But Ling Yingyu, an international relations professor at Taiwan's Danjiang University, says the trip is political. For Lai, this trip is especially to break out of some of the suspicions the U.S. may have about him and prove he can engage with the U.S. That's because many of Lai's supporters are in favor of declaring Taiwan's formal independence as a country, a minority position in Taiwan that neither the U.S. nor China supports. He'll need to convince the U.S. that's not something he'll pursue if he hopes to have a good relationship with Washington, and do that without alienating his voters. Emily Fang, NPR News. There's a type of visa in the U.S. called the U-Visa for immigrants who are victims of crime in this country. It is meant to encourage the reporting of such crimes to police, but the program is plagued by delays, and that leaves applicants in limbo as NPR's Terraza, Terraza Christopher reports. Luis Melian fled his home country of Venezuela in 2016. We had people, like, break into our house. My brother-in-law was kidnapped once. I was mugged three times in a period of 30 days with guns. So it was really, really scary. He got to the U.S. and applied for asylum. Three years later, he and a friend got mugged again, this time in Tennessee. Two guys with guns approached us and were like, you know, give me the cash. But as they walked away, they said, you're lucky we're not going to kill you tonight. His misfortune came with what he thought was a stroke of luck. He was now eligible for something called a U visa. The only immigrants who can get a U visa are those who have been victims of certain crimes in the U.S., like felony assaults, abduction, domestic violence, torture, and trafficking. One of the program's goals was to encourage more reporting of crime. The U visa program was to basically be a tool that would help law enforcement and prosecutors and other government agencies like courts build better relationships with immigrant communities. Leslie Orloff was a lead drafter of the U visa program when it was created in 2000 and is now director of the National Immigrant Women's Advocacy Project. She says this visa is a two-way street. Victims come forward and they're able to cooperate and the police and prosecutors are able to solve crimes. Victims only receive the visa if they agree to work with American law enforcement to help catch their perpetrator. For Luis, this was an opportunity. He had been waiting for years for asylum, but this was a new pathway to citizenship. You know, I had hopes that the U visa was a faster pathway to getting documents and be able to, like, I guess, have some sort of security. But, you know, it's taken over five years. Luis is one of more than 300,000 people waiting for their U visa applications to be reviewed. NPR looked into the U visa program and found that a backlog that could last up to 10 years puts most applicants in a tense holding pattern. They have to stay in the United States to get the visa, but are unable to work legally. NPR spoke to 17 U visa applicants, each of whom have been waiting for two to seven years. 
Here are Rodrigo Bittencourt, Viviana Espitia, and Nathan Chung. So five years I don't see my daughter. I don't have work permit and every day is worse for me. Yeah, I kind of felt like I was stuck. I didn't know that the wait time would be so long. Leticia Quevedo is a paralegal who works for a California nonprofit organization. I have clients who are forced to collect cans, bottles, so that they can make ends meet. She works regularly with U-Visa applicants. It seems like the backlog has been increasing. An internal report from the Department of Homeland Security in 2022 said that the U-Visa program was susceptible to fraud and was not managed effectively. Multiple lawyers said that even though the U-Visa was established to protect these victims, the backlog makes them vulnerable to re-victimization. Here's Orloff again. When people are working undocumented, they're more at risk for sexual assault, sexual harassment, physical abuse, wage theft, all of those kinds of things that are debilitating and dangerous and abusive. For Luis, he says this meant working in a warehouse with no days off, doing 13-hour shifts and getting paid $9 an hour. But he had to work. Because you don't have documents, they force you to work. Like, if you want a day off, they're like, no, you can take it off, but don't come back. He did eventually get a work permit through his asylum application. But most U-Visa applicants don't have that alternative. Not being able to work makes life stressful. You know, everyone has bills to pay. And so every aspect of your life, it's up in the air. A U-Visa administrator from the Department of Homeland Security told me that they are committed to eliminating barriers and restoring faith in the system. But he did not specify how for the applicants still in limbo. Terza Christopher, NPR News. The third summer in a row, Washington, D.C. was taken over by dinosaurs. The D.C. Public Library announced the winners of its annual Dinosaur Roaring Contest this week. Entries include the terrifying Toddlersaurus, a gigantic Tyrannosaurus Rex, the Pterodactyl of Capitol Hill, grunts, shrieks, and the classic. Roar! Like that. Librarian Elaine Pelton organizes the contest. I will fully admit this. I am not very interested in dinosaurs. I've never been interested in dinosaurs. Surprising, perhaps even herself, Elaine Pelton says she got the idea when she heard about a Charleston, South Carolina man who advertised a dinosaur roaring contest and asked participants to call a friend of his with their best submissions. It was a prank. But Elaine Pelton thought, aha, that's what I want in my voicemail. D.C. Public Library got about 120 entries this year. Ms. Pelton and the other judges chose 13 winners, giving points for energy. If somebody's particularly enthusiastic and you can tell, then that's something that we like to see. But no points for volume. I personally am not a fan of screaming entries. The loudness is not what's going to make or break your entry, or, or it might break it, actually. Seven-year-old Emilia Massey-Lopez won Best Child Vocals for her impression of Giganotosaurus. 
you can tell this is something that she's really perfected. This is her thing. And it's really wonderful to watch. One especially tough category. Lane Pelton says it's toddlers. The category we get by far the most entries from our baby toddler category, which makes it really difficult for the judges because <laughs> you have to be like, have conversations like, well, this toddler just really needed to step it up. <laughs> he needed to step up his game. <laughs> and the judges do reward accuracy. Elaine Pelton suggests contestants ought to try to sound more like a reptile than a mammal. And before you begin to roar at your smart speaker, okay, we know this network has reported extensively that dinosaurs probably didn't really roar. Roar is probably a really great sound for a dinosaur in a movie or if you are kind of having an exciting time thinking about dinosaurs, but it's probably not very close to the sound a living dinosaur would have made. Matthew Carano was the curator of Dinosauria. What a title at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. That would make him pretty much an expert, except... In a very literal sense, we know nothing, because we don't have the ability to fossilize sound. It's been several millions of years since dinosaurs made whatever sound they made, but Mr. Carano believes we can eliminate some possibilities. Dinosaurs probably didn't have, for example the specialized organ that songbirds have to make the very, you know, sophisticated songs that they do. They don't have the complicated facial muscles that mammals have. So the way we articulate our sounds to make consonants and vowels, I think that's pretty clearly beyond the physical capabilities of an animal like a dinosaur. But they've also could have made sounds that we couldn't hear, too high, too low, things like that. There are some clues in their closest living relatives. Things like ostriches and emus and the kind of sounds they make, or even dinosaur cousins that are alive like crocodiles and alligators and the sounds they make. And none of those things are animals that roar or really are loud in the way that mammals are loud. Mammals do a lot of yelling. In case you've never heard an alligator and really would want to get close enough to converse, or an emu, here's what they'd sound like all mushed together. Well, anyone knows that could be scientifically accurate. In fact, so could this. That's a species our crew calls the Scotosaurus. Now, I missed the D.C. Public Library's deadline for entries, but while we had a paleontologist on the line, we just had to ask, how'd I do? I actually think it's not too bad. Well, thanks for the encouragement. Elaine Pelton said I was pretty reptilian. <laughs> I hope she meant the sound I make and says that she's open to changing the name of the Dinosaur Roaring Contest to more accurately reflect science. In the meantime, she hopes people don't take it too seriously, just like we did. Oh, I love this contest so much. It gives people a chance to shine in something that they might not otherwise have a chance to shine in. I literally just love giving out trophies. It's just fun to see what people will do, and I love this sense when it all comes together of this global community that's really heartwarming. And if dinosaur roars don't warm your heart, this fall the library will hold an evil laugh contest. <laughs> that's terrible. I sound like I'm barfing.
Weekend Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. People in San Francisco can see driverless cars cruising their streets, and this week California decided to let these self-driving cars also operate like taxis. NPR's tech correspondent, Dara Kerr, joins us. Dara, thanks so much for being with us. Nice to be here. And what was behind this decision to expand the use of driverless cars? Yeah, these self-driving cars have been causing quite a controversy in San Francisco, and it really came to the fore this week during two separate lengthy meetings with the California Public Utilities Commission, which is a state regulator. In a three-to-one vote, the commission decided to let self-driving cars expand their programs and allow them to basically operate like taxis. So now these cars can pick up passengers and charge a fare at all hours of the day. Up until now, the companies had pretty limited passenger pickup programs. And just to be clear, these cars have no human inside until a rider gets in. They're operating completely autonomously. And the two companies that run these vehicles are Cruise, which is owned by GM, and Waymo, which is owned by Google parent Alphabet. And and what's been the controversy? Yeah, so before the first meeting this week, there was a protest out front of the commission's office. People were chanting, stop the robo-taxis. And at the same time, Waymo brought in dozens of its employees, and they were wearing bright yellow shirts that said, safer roads for all. And hundreds of people signed up to give public comment at these meetings. The companies and people in support of self-driving cars said they're safer than human-driven ones. You don't have drunk drivers or people texting or falling asleep. And people who are LGBTQ and women say they'd face less harassment in a car without a human. However, a lot more people spoke out against the driverless cars. Bicycle and pedestrian advocates said they've had near misses. Others said they don't want to be guinea pigs for this technology. Some said the fact that the cars are covered in cameras is unnerving. Here's Lauren Renaud. Just every day by walking around being videotaped by these and having them track my movements, I am being part of their business. Dara, you've reported about police and fire, other first responders having problems with driverless cars, right? Yeah, so the San Francisco police and fire departments have been really vocal on this issue. They've been tracking incidents where driverless cars have gotten in the way of first responders. At the first commission meeting this week, the fire department said that over the last six months, it tracked 55 incidents where cars have botched emergency operations. The San Francisco fire chief, Janine Nicholson, testified at the meeting, and she said her firefighters can't be dealing with these self-driving cars when they have to be putting up ladders and putting out fires. Again, I will reiterate it is not our job to babysit their vehicles. Both the police and fire departments have faced a lot of problems. The cars have run through yellow emergency tape, they've blocked firehouse driveways, and they've run over fire hoses while firefighters were trying to put out a blaze. They've also blocked one-way streets and refused to move. And there's no driver inside the car to communicate with when that happens, so fire trucks have had to back up and take another road. Every second can make the difference. A fire can double in size in one minute. If we are blocked by an autonomous vehicle, that could lead to more harm to the people in that building, to the housing overall, 
and to my first responders. The companies haven't directly answered why this is happening with emergency vehicles. And in a recent earnings call with the CEO of GM's Cruise, he said he thought San Francisco could handle several thousand more driverless cars on the city's streets. NPR's Derek Kerr, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts could be dealing with a budget deficit after tax revenues last fiscal year fell nearly half a billion dollars short of projections. The Department of Revenue blames lower capital gains tax collections. The mayor of Everett has picked up a victory in a defamation lawsuit. A Middlesex Superior Court judge ruled yesterday that Carlo Di Maria will likely win a judgment of at least $850,000 against the Everett Herald. The suit accused the newspaper, its owner, and its publisher of fabricating corruption charges against the mayor. A retail tradition in the Northeast ends today. This is the final day to patronize any Christmas tree shops locations. Months after the chain founded in 1970 in Massachusetts filed for bankruptcy, many of the locations already have closed their doors, but you can shop today in communities including Avon, Foxborough, Linfield, Shrewsbury, and Somerville. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. And the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village, now playing George and Ira Gershwin's An American in Paris. Up next, Lerner and Lowe's musical Camelot. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, actor Dax Shepard talks about a very disappointing date. For the amount that I paid for this thing, I was expecting a little more than cuddling. I'm Peter Sagal. I think you will be satisfied with what we have lined up for you on this week's News Quiz, also with Donny Osmond and the Barefoot Contessa. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Tell the band it's time for sports. Women's World Cup. Phil Mickelson, big-time golfer, big-time gambler, and a home state honor. For Caitlin Clark, Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Sure. Love the NPR marching band, as always. Yeah, I, I ought to see them on the field sometime. In any event, <laughs> World Cup, Women's World Cup quarterfinals. Uh, Australia, the host country, knocked out France earlier today. Mon Dieu, mon Dieu. And <laughs> ole, 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 ole. England just beat Colombia 2-1. to one. 
we uh, had the game on here. Lots of exciting action, isn't there? Oh, yeah, definitely. Huge morning, Scott, for soccer fans. Heck of an effort from Columbia, but uh, England rose to the challenge. They came from behind to win that game. Now, it was an even more dramatic showdown between Australia and France. They played to a scoreless draw. Ultimately, it was decided by one of the most dramatic penalty shootouts of the tournament. Yeah. 20 players kicking a penalty when finally Courtney Vine found the back of the net to give the Matildas, as the Australia team is known, a 7-6 win in penalties over a really, really stout French team. So all this, Scott, means that Australia advances to face England in the semis in Sydney on Wednesday. I've heard these two countries have a little bit of history here. Yeah, so... a small bit, yeah. Same, <laughs> same history we have with Great Britain, yeah. Indeed, yeah, so it could be a good one. Uh, other semifinal game, uh, Sweden, uh, after beating Japan, uh, and uh, Spain comes in at the semifinals for the first time with a lot of momentum after their win over the Netherlands. What do you expect? Yeah, you know what? You can call Sweden the giant killers of this tournament after they eliminated Japan. Japan was the last of the former Women's yeah. World Cup winners in the competition, which means whoever wins this thing, it's going to be a first as for Spain, they're coming off a win over the Netherlands, which you mentioned, with a teenager coming off the bench in extra time, Salma Paruello. She scored the winning goal for them. Now, real quick here, Sweden's done a really good job this tournament of disrupting teams early from getting into their rhythm, so we could very well see similar tactics in how they approach Spain. Tuesday should be a lot of fun. Boy, this new book by Billy Walters, the uh, renowned sports better is making news. Uh, in an excerpt, he alleges that Phil Mickelson, the great golfer, has wagered more than, <clears throat> this is not a misprint, $1 billion over the last 30 years, and he has lost close to $100 million. Now, Phil Mickelson's been pretty open about what he refers to as a, as a gambling addiction, but these numbers are breathtaking, aren't they? Yeah, it, it it's eye-popping, it's gobsmacking, a billion with a B dollars uh, was allegedly bet. And according to the book, Mickelson even wanted to place a $400,000 bet on the 2012 Ryder Cup, which you may remember he was playing in yeah. for Team USA. You know, Billy Walters is a famous sports gambler. He partnered up with Mickelson on some of those NBA and NFL bets. Yeah. And these guys would place bigger bets together and split the proceeds 50-50. So, you know, Walters, there's a lot going on here, but Walters is seen as a reliable source. Uh, now, he's coming off doing five years in prison for insider trading. He kind of blames Mickelson a little bit for that, so there's a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. But Rory McIlroy, who has an ongoing feud with Mickelson, said on this at least phil can bet on the Ryder cup this year because he won't be a part of it that is a sick burn but you know all of this yeah. comes among increased scrutiny legalized sports Fine. gambling scott finally caitlin clark the honor of all time at the iowa state fair what is it? it it's a big statue made out of butter of caitlin clark it's awesome for her she's a huge star in women's basketball michelangelo eat your heart out michelle Steele of espn you melted our hearts thank you <laughs> <laughs> there was a boy 
named Emil, who fell in love with a field. It was wide and blue, and if you could have seen it, so would have you. That's award-winning poet Kevin Young, reading from his children's book, Emil and the Field. He would whisper to it for hours, and it would bring him the yellowest flowers. The bumblebees would sing to him, never sting. Their words were honey, which fed him and led him to wander. Emil in the Field is about a little boy named Emil, who spends every season playing in a field by his house. Usually he has the whole place to himself. He likes it. He's at first very troubled by the other kids who come by and play, and his father helps him understand that this is a place you can share and grow together with. Kevin Young is also director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. He originally wrote Emil on the Field years ago as a bedtime poem for his son. I had written a few of these little Emil poems, and um, I love rhyme, though I don't often use it in the fullest sense, but a, a good, you know, what they call slant rhyme or off rhyme, I think really speaks to how English can sound and the beauty and the song in the sounds of speaking. And so it takes that rhyme or little off rhyme as a way to kind of, and those pauses, that's what I love in a poem, and to get to turn the page as part of your pause is really wonderful in a picture book. Kevin Young's son is a teenager now. He reads for himself. But that poem about Emil lives on now as this children's book, illustrated by Choma Ebinaba. For our series Picture This, Kevin Young and Choma Ebinama tell the story of how Emil in the Field came to be. All of the illustrations are all hand-painted on paper in watercolor. The book starts sort of in spring and then summer and fall and winter. I made sure that all of the images were lush and vibrant and gave that sort of image of not just like the natural world, but also sort of that feeling of love and intoxication that one can have in a natural environment. So the palette is primarily like pinks and blues and turquoise and really sunny yellows, and also drew from a lot of other visual inspirations that I have, like Miyazaki films, uh, 15th century medieval tapestries, just to name a few. I love hearing those kind of classical inspirations, but I also would say classic children's books, you know, a little less uh, old than the tapestries you mentioned. But I was thinking as much about the children's books I grew up with. I would say I was growing up during the start of when black children's books were becoming more popular and more available. They have always been around and, you know, going back to the 20s when you have wonderful children's books, especially done by Carter G. Woodson and his company and, and those kind of things that have been always there for black print culture. But to grow up with Ezra Jack Keats and, and Lucille Clifton and her Everett Anderson series, I sort of saw Emile as this figure who has other stories to tell, and then this was the first one. And so I loved seeing this little brown boy come to life. That was really important to me, that it was sort of unspoken, but also understood that he could be this protagonist who loved nature and, and connected with nature, um, 
but that his blackness would be assumed and, and part and parcel of who he was. Yes. I mean, Ezra Jack Keats was definitely also a huge influence, but also the fact that children's books were always my entryway into art making. I learned to draw by copying a lot of my favorite books as a kid. So thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I also love the parts that I almost forget are in there, like this plane flying overhead or the skyscrapers in the distance. And it isn't simply just a nature book devoid of you know city life. I feel like there's a sense that this field is something precious because maybe it isn't all field around where Emil lives. Um, and then that little black dog, of course, I remember getting the first pages and I thought they were so wonderful. And especially there was this great dog in there who isn't necessarily in the poem, but there he was and it seemed like the dog had to be there. And I love that sort of playfulness and the companionship that Emil in the illustrations has with the dog, which he also has with this field. The dog is actually my dog who I received as a gift from my partner right at the beginning of making these illustrations. So I was teaching her, like potty training her at the same time that I was drawing. And this being my first picture book, I was really actually concerned about how to make Emil look consistent when the locations were changing so much. Yeah. And I was like, if we include this dog, then you know that the character on the page is Emil on every page. So that's my dog, Luna. <laughs> well, she's great. There was a kind of family quality to the book for me. Um, Emil's my great-grandfather's name, but also my son was fairly young and around Emil's age when I started writing it. And so I was reading a lot of mm -hmm. kids' books to him. You know, there's nothing better, I think, than being read to or reading to someone. It really connects you to this long storytelling tradition. And that's how poems are. You know, they are these intimate things you carry in your breath and you pass from one person to another, even if that person's long ago not with us and you're reading it in a book. And there's something about that living quality that I think the illustrations capture and I hope the book as a whole does. Author and poet Kevin Young and illustrator Choma Ebinama talking about their children's book, Emil and the Field. Our series, Picture This, is produced by Samantha Balaban. Thousands of hackers are descending on Las Vegas for their annual gathering, DEFCON. They'll hack cars, medical devices, even learn how to pick a lock. And participants will up their own security. And you can, like, hack into Wi-Fi's, people's hotel rooms, and, like, get your credit card information. It's pretty wild. Um, I've got my RFID blocking, I've got my VPN, I've got everything to secure myself. You can listen to that story later today on All Things Considered. Tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Sixto Rodriguez was a rock star who didn't even know it for years. He released two albums in the early 1970s. They went nowhere in America, but in South Africa, he became a megastar. For a blue coin, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams? Sixto Rodriguez died this week, according to his website. He was born and raised in Detroit, the sixth child of Mexican immigrants. 
He told NPR's Joel Rose in 2008 that when he recorded his debut album, Cold Fact, with a group of Motown record session players... We thought it was going to happen, you know, and everything looked good, but uh, there's no guarantees in the music. Met a girl from Devon early six o'clock this morning, cold facts. He would record another album, Coming from Reality. It also flopped. As he told us in 2012, he had to work for a living. I do demolition. I renovate homes and buildings and residents in, in Detroit, and that's what I was doing. And then I just I left the music scene. So I basically went back to work. But while Sixto Rodriguez faded into obscurity here, his music lived on in South Africa. The mayor hides the crime rates, councilwoman hesitates, public gets irate, but forgets the boat dates. Nobody's quite sure how the music found its way to the apartheid state, but its anti-establishment lyrics appealed to young Afrikaners. Sixto Rodriguez became beloved. As Cape Town record store owner Steven Seegerman told NPR in 2008, The rumor was that he was dead, that he died in a number of very strange ways. He set himself on fire on stage. He died in prison. Everybody had a story. The late Malik Benjaloul, who made an Oscar-winning documentary about Sixto Rodriguez, told us that in the 1990s, a couple of people from South Africa tried to find out what happened to their favorite musician. After years of search, they found the producer of the album. They call him and they are like full of questions. They ask, how was the album made? And the most important thing, how did he die? And he says, no, I saw Rodriguez this morning. He's he's living down the street. (laughs) And they call Rodriguez and they tell him, you're bigger than Elvis. And he, you know, hangs up the phone. He thinks it's a crank call. It's it's a practical joke. (laughs) So they call him again and say, listen, listen, this is true. Did you make an album called Cold Fact? Yeah, yeah, that's my album. In South Africa, it's more famous than Abbey Road. Later in the 1990s, Sixto Rodriguez would tour South Africa, and he was received rapturously. The first tour was just, we did Cape Town, Durban, by the Indian Ocean, and we did Johannesburg. The audience was just so young and so just bright faces in front of me. Johannesburg! He told NPR in 2008 he was surprised by his fans. My audience is Afrikaans, and and it's kind of interesting, you know. I I expected third world disgruntles or something, you know. (laughs) But it's it's quite not that. Was it a huntsman or a player that made you pay the cost? That now assumes relaxed positions and prostitutes your loss. Were you tortured by your own thirst in those pleasures that you seek? That made you Tom the Curious, that makes you James the Weak. The words and music of Sixto Rodriguez, who died this week at the age of 81. And you claim. And boy, he was great. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon.